I think it is safe to say that there are few passages in Scripture as controversial and difficult to understand as Matthew 24. Many books have been written about this passage, about this chapter. Especially during the Cold War here in North America, many books were written about Matthew 24. But most commentators agree that the first 14 verses of this chapter are the easiest to understand. So I'm glad I'm preaching the first 14 verses today, and Tom is preaching the rest of the chapter next week. And actually, this is, that is one of the beauty of expositional preaching. We take a book of the Bible, we open, and we go through the whole, whole book. We preach the easy text, and we preach the difficult text. Because we, as people of God, we need the whole of the scripture. And that's what I, one of the reasons I appreciate the Tom and the elders. They want to, us to learn the whole counsel of God so that we will be exposed to the word and will be transformed by the word of God. If you don't have your Bible open, I ask you, please open your Bible in Matthew 24. We just listen to the reading of the passage. If you have one of those, the Pew's Bible, you will find the chapter in page 829. If you are new here, uh, if you're not familiar with the, with the Bible, the chapters are the big numbers and the verses are the small number. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. If you go to the middle of the Bible, Matthew, chapter 24, verse 1 through 14. And this is what I want to do this morning with us. I want to walk through these verses one by one, unpack the meaning of the text, and then apply the text to us. So I will be drawing some applications as I walk through the text. Last week, Tom preached the last chapter of Matthew 23, where Jesus pronounced a final judgment on the rulers of Israel, and really on Israel as a whole. Though God has sent his eternal son, the king of kings, to redeem them, they have rejected him, and he has passed judgment on them. We read about the seven woes that he pronounced against them, really seven charges about how they have failed in their duty as Israel leaders. We heard how actually they all come down to unbelief. And Pastor Tom talked about how we, as Christ's covenant, can avoid reflecting the same kind of unbelief or hypocrisy that we saw in them that we can find sometimes in our lives. The passage ended last week with the, this dramatic moment of Jesus crying out to the city of Jerusalem, saying how often he had learned to fall her into his arms. But she, Israel, was unwilling, instead rejecting and even killing the prophets that he had sent to her. It was like the summary of the whole Old Testament. But here, because Israel has rejected him, the Lord has declared now that he is leaving Israel's house desolated. And in verse 1, we read that he left the temple and he was going away. When we read, it reminds us of Ezekiel. If you go back to Ezekiel, don't do that now. In chapter 10, you will see how the glory of God left the temple. Because a holy and a perfect God, he would not dwell in a defiled and corrupted temple. In Ezekiel also, we see in chapter 11, that the glory of God went to the mountain of the east. Here we see Christ leaving the temple and going to the Mount of Olives, which is in the east of Jerusalem. Yahweh, the Lord, left Israel in Ezekiel. Here, the Lord in flesh is leaving the temple. The temple of flesh is leaving the temple of stone. 
But the disciples, they didn't get it. They were trying to call his attention to the buildings. And they say, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. They were marveling. They were amazed at the beauty of the temple. Certainly, it was an amazing temple. When we read uh, history, for example, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he used to talk about how beautiful, how big this temple was. One stone, for example, one, just one stone of the temple would be 11 feet tall and 40 feet wide. And, and it was just kind of amazing, blinding to see when the sun rests in the temple because it was this kind of beautiful white marble. It was like we, looking at the snow a couple of weeks ago when we had some snow, the sun was there, it was uncomfortable to the eye because it was so bright. Something like that happened with the temple. They were impressed. The problem was that you do not impress the Creator, the Lord of Lords, with stone carved by men. He made those stones. He made the dust in which they were walking. Christ was not impressed with the temple. And actually, and most importantly, he was not impressed with what was going on in the temple. So he answers them with this astonishing statement. But he answered them, you see all this, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Imagine the reaction of the apostles, of the disciples. They grew up believing that the temple will never be destroyed until the end of the world. In their minds, the destruction of the temple was connected to the end of the world. At that point, still struggling with the meaning of the temple. Remember when we read Matthew, uh, John 1, uh, and then John 1, 2, and 3, we see that he says that destroy this temple and it will build the temple in three days. And then John books a comment and say, after he was raised from the dead, after the resurrection, then we were reminded of that, and then we understood it. Here, they still don't understand the meaning of the temple. The temple in the Old Testament is the dwelling place of God, where people have communion with God. When we read John 1, he said the word was God, and then in 114, he said the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there, dwelt, is it's kind of a, the translation, the Greek literal translation, would be, and he tabernacle among us. He was the temple. He was the Lord himself in flesh. The Lord made man walking among us. So the temple in the Old Testament pointed to him. Here we have the temple of God. And that's why we as people of God, because we are communing with him through the Son in the Spirit, we are the temple of God. They didn't understand that this temple of stone, that God was building a more magnificent temple, a more beautiful temple, as the prophets foretold. For he had nothing to do with this temple, in which everything was opposed to him. Commenting on this passage in the fourth century, there was a pastor named Hilary of Poitras. And he said, the temple of Jerusalem was to be destroyed, since the more beautiful and eternal temple which is every true Christian, was being consecrated by the Holy Spirit. This is a new age, a new beginning, a new creation. 
people will no longer worship God at the temple, but in spirit and truth. We are the temple of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. In Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we are made worthy of becoming God's dwelling place on earth. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that we have to be holy, that we should not defile our bodies because we are the temple of God and we have communion with him. We don't have to go to a priest to have communion with God because we go through him directly, through the Son in the Spirit. We don't have more sacrifice today because the one that through sacrifice was made in Christ Jesus, as Hebrews tells us. But, like the disciples, many of us can be distracted by a similar admiration of earthly power. We look, things are impressive, influential, and we marvel at creation instead of marveling at the Creator. Oh, my brothers and sisters, do not be distracted or amazed by things that the from this world. They, like the temple, they will pass away. The question of the disciple and the answering the Lord here set the tone for the learned change that runs through the next two chapters. So when they come to him and they ask him about the temple and he said to them that the temple will be destroyed, they were shocked. But then they kind of, after the shock, in verse 3, they say, as they sat on the Mount of Olives, sometime after that, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The, for the disciple, as I mentioned earlier, the end, the destruction of the temple was connected to the destruction of the world. They grew up believing that. So they think they answer, they're asking one question here, when in fact they are asking two questions, because the destruction of the temple was not connected to the destruction of the world, as we today know, and they found out in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed and they were still alive. As Calvin says, one error leads to another error. They were confused about that, and they were expecting something different from the Lord. So that is when he began to talk to them. Not so much about a specific date and time, but more importantly about how they should conduct themselves as followers of King Jesus during this final age. If you ask, like, what would be the point of these 14 verses? It would be that. There will be delay. Let no one lead you astray. Trust Christ and put your, your eyes on him. That would be the pain of the passage. But most of them know. We think about days, time, this happening. In verse 4, then, we see Jesus begins to answer the question. The point of Christ in these 10 verses is that there will be a delay before the end, a delay that is marked by opposition and persecution. And this is what biblical scholars call the birth of the Messiah, the birth pain of the Messiah. He tells the disciple. See that no one leads you astray, verse 4. Verse 5, he talks about false messiah. We read, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Well, we have seen many of those throughout history. I remember when I was working in Washington, uh, I was invited to an event uh, 
we received an email to, to the embassy, and the ambassador was unable to go. I said, you go. And I went, it was with uh, Sun Moon Yoon. He's from South Korea. I don't know if you know, familiar with the Moonies. He was the owner of the Washington Times. And he declared himself to be the Messiah. And he found this unification church, where people from all of churches were coming together, and he was declaring himself to be the Redeemer. Well, sadly, he died in 2012 to know he knows better. But many people follow him. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people follow him. And there's a many of those that we can read on the news. There's so many others that you don't know, like in Puerto Rico. There was a guy, you know, Jose Luis Jesus de Miranda. And he called himself the Christ. And he had kind of some tattoo on his left arm, the Christ. But he was so confused that he has another tattoo in the right arm, he said, the Antichrist. So he was both. But I remember when he visited the Dominican Republic like six years ago, people were protesting about that. And he, um, but thousands of people came to that. It was crazy. I said, how does that make sense? But people blinded by our sin, they were distracted and confused by then, and they perished. I mean, even during the Reformation, we saw some people that they cross themselves to be messiahs. For example, Jan Mathaya in the town of Munster in Germany. He led the rebellion of Munster. And he said that Munster would be the new Jerusalem. And he found kind of a polygamal theocracy there. Well, he was killed by the army, and then he was gone. But many followed him into that. And we see us see that. But here we see not only, I mean, the whole world being confused by that. And we have to be aware of that, that many will come and lead many astray. In verse 6, we read, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. In verse 7, also we read, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Every once in a while, you will read, we were listening in the radio, a rather energetic and maybe thoughtless preacher who will say, who will use these verses to say, the end is here. When in fact, these verses are telling us that the end is not here. That's what he says. See that no one leads you straight. This must take place, but the end is not yet. However, we use this verse to say that the end is here. But the text is saying that the end is not yet. So all these events, wars, earthquakes, natural disasters, they will mark this long period. But sometimes we look at them and they say, oh, this is the end. But the text actually says that is not the end. There is not yet. That these things must happen. But even our Bibles kind of confuse us a little bit. Because if you have an ESV, as I'm reading here, if you see the subheading says, signs of the end of the age. When the text is saying it's not the end yet. Of course, that sign of the age is not in the original. That's something that editor put there. So the point is, don't think that these particular events signal the date of judgment. You are going to have to wait for some time. And these things, like wars, rumors of wars, false cries, false prophets, earthquakes, famines, are going to mark a long time. Again, verse, verse 6, and you will hear of wars and 
See that you are not alarmed. Trust me, I am the sovereignty Lord. I'm in control. He, so this is not kind of an accident. He said, this must take place. But the end is not yet. <laughs> so Christ is here. Not, he's not laying a timeline for the end. Instead, he's telling his disciples what they can to expect from the war around them. And it begins now, he says. He already warned them of some of these th themes in chapter 10, where he said, you will be persecuted for my name's sake. Our responsibility as Christians in the midst of all this is not to be led astray, not to be panicked every time you hear of a war or an earthquake, but to stay focused on Christ. Do your duty and remain faithful. He's exhorting us to learn patience, to wait and to trust him. See, he said, this must take place. It's not an accident. He's in control. He's the sovereign Lord. He's the Alpha and the Omega, and he loves his church. He loves us. The truth is that in a church like ours, Christ's covenant church, you can say, well, I'm not interested or distracted by eschatology. Or oh, I don't have strange ideas about a barcode or a ship in a cell phone or about theories about Russia and Iran coming to this. You can say that. I hope so. But the problem is that it's not only eschatology that can become a theological distraction to us. It could be a spiritual gift. It could be soteriology, that we just talk about soteriology so much that we talk about something without talking to the Redeemer, the one who saved us. Or even apologetics. Or we have favorite preachers or theologians, and we are so distracted by them that we think more about them than what we think about Christ himself. It could be also the philosophy of education. I remember Sarah and I, when we had our daughter, we were visiting the church, and we walk into the church. Lady come, she greet us, you know, after the hi, how are you? The first question she asked, she looked at the baby, like five days born, and she said, are you going to homeschool her? And I... I mean, she didn't know if we were a Christian. And, and I thought, huh, tell me who your God is. Or perhaps some are distracted with Wall Street and the ups and downs in the, the stock market. Or even social media. Sometimes we find ourselves that we don't have time to read scripture or to pray, but we spend hours in social media. Or politics during this season. And, how, and think, think about how we think about politics. This, if this one is elected, everything will be right. It's like if it's a Christ coming. Only Jesus will make things right. Think about what has become a distraction in your own life. Think about what is removing your sight from Jesus. Think about who's taking your attention from Christ. In verse 9, there's a shift. In verses 8, 4 to 8, the focus is on events that affect all creation, all people, all humanity. Earthquakes, wars, that those affect everybody. If earthquakes happen in Raleigh, everybody will be affected, not only Christian. If there's a war, all the people in that city, or in that town, or in that country will be affected by the war. But here he shifts the attention. 
And he says, then they will deliver you, speaking to the disciples. So the, the, the focus is no longer on kind of like international events, but on God's people, on the church, on us, as Christ's covenant. Dear Carson argues, that verse 9, that the then, this then is not talking about a chronological aspect, like this war will happen, earthquake and tornadoes and hurricanes, and then you will persecute it. It's not like that. It's all together. So the then is not marking like a separation of time between one and the other. We always have those, and we can see that throughout history. Verse 9, we see persecution. Let's read it again. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. You see the reason? For my name's sake. They will not persecute you because of who you are, but because of the Lord in who you trust. If they hate him, they will hate the church. In Matthew 10, Matthew 5, verse 10, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 12 in Matthew 5, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophet who were before you. The people of God will be persecuted. Not because who we are in ourselves, but who we are in him, in Jesus. In North America, because of the peace, and the favor that the church has enjoyed in society, many preachers have thought that freedom, power, influence, wealth, beauty, business, social acceptance are part of the Christian heritage, when they are not. When you read the New Testament, the norm is to be opposed, insulted, and mocked. Two points here on the issue of persecution. One, if you don't see persecution in your life, consider whether you are being bold enough in your faith. I will repeat that. If you don't see persecution in your life, consider whether you are being bold enough in your faith. This is serious. Ask yourself, is it possible that there is no persecution in my life precisely because I have been hiding my identity as a Christian, so that I can avoid persecution? Or, am I bold enough in my faith? Or am I just trying to be kind of a secret Christian so that people will not know? Let us be, be honest with ourselves. And remember this, persecution is not always physical. Sometimes it's emotional, psychological, and even spiritual. Peter says that slander and insults are persecution. By the way, so is silent pity. And we have to ask ourselves, am I being bold enough in my faith when I'm just trying to be quiet as a Christian so that people will not know that I'm a Christian so that they will not mock me? The students can ask us that. That happens a lot in college. We want to be accepted. We want to be fun, friendly, so we don't talk about Christ. So that friends will not make fun of us. Then, after you ask your question, 
ask again and think again. Then, if you don't see persecution in your life, and this is the second point, thank God and use this peaceful time well. Thank God and use this time of peace well. So if God has given you a time of peace, don't waste that time feeling guilty about it. Thank God for that. Don't feel bad that you're not persecuted. Feel God and praise God for that. But use that well. And assume that, like every Christian, you will eventually be tested by the hatred of the world for your Lord and spend this beautiful time preparing for that. So if we say, well, we are, we don't, we're not persecuted, we have a peaceful time, people don't threaten the church, well, praise God. But prepare yourself because there might be a time when that will not be the case. But also take advantage of that in, in, the, in the expansion of the gospel, preaching the gospel. For example, invite non-Christian friends to your house and talk to them. By some reason, we always like to spend time with people that are like us, and we don't want to spend time with people that are not like us. But remember, you heard the gospel. Someone preached to you. Imagine if someone who would not be bold enough to preach to you where you would be. Spend time with non-Christian. Share the gospel with them. If you work, organize a Bible study, maybe, during lunch break at, at your office. And that's easy to do. And also, pray for those that are persecuted. I was reading this week the Time magazine, and we read that the, the pastor of the largest church in China was taken to prison, and his wife was disappeared. They didn't know where she was. I mean, I, I know friends in Cuba that they have been taken to jail because they preached the gospel. Remember, if we don't see persecution in our lives, don't forget that our, there are brothers and sisters that are being persecuted today. Not because who they are or how they look like, but because of the gospel. In verse 10, this is a, we read, And then many will fall away and betray, and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will go cold. We see here false prophets in, in verse 11. In verse 5, he talks about false messiahs. Those false messiahs will confuse people from all over the world, from different religions. right? Here in verse 11, we see false prophets. Those that will come into the church and will confuse people within the church. People that will fall away from the church. We see this has been a problem throughout all history. In fact, almost every letter, almost every letter of the New Testament warns against false teachers. And that's why we have to be very careful who we allow to teach us. Not everyone that opens the Bible is truly teaching the Bible. You can see false teachers on TV that they have a Bible there. But the Bible is not being taught. The Bible is not being exposed. It's not being preached. The fact that someone has the Bible doesn't mean that he is preaching the Bible. 
If you're not sure about a particular pastor or a particular teacher that you follow, ask your elders. They will be glad to help to you, help you with that. Friends, and remi- remember this. Sometimes we think about false teachers as people with horns, those kind of things. Like bad, mean. No. I mean, false teachers will come like just talking about how great things are, how love is everything, how love wins. Uh, don't forget about repentance, don't, don't talk about sin, just how things, how great things are. But also, we can find those who are all only talking about condemnation and sin, and they don't talk about repentance and grace and redemption. So we can have both extremes. Those that you say, oh, things are great, don't worry about it, have your best life today. And others who will say, you go to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. You are a sinner. Yes, we are sinners, but we have a Savior. So we preach the whole truth of Christ, the whole gospel. And false teachers also can be found in kind of in traditions. I, I like tradition, but sometimes we embrace tradition in such a way that it becomes kind of a death orthodoxy. We read about that, for example, in, in Denmark. Uh, we saw how the church was called dead, but they, they still talk about truth. Uh, there's a historian, I don't remember the name today, he used to say, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the death faith of the living. So we want to embrace traditions, but we have a faith that is living. And we want that faith to shape our lives and how we live to one, with one another, how we treat people, and how we love people. Pressure and persecution and affliction of the world will cause many who profess Christ to fall away, not to lose their salvation, but to prove that they were never really new at first place. The Bible teaches that the saints will persevere. And that's the point of, of, of John in, in, one of, in, in First John and Second John. They left us. They went away because they were never of us. So here it's not talking about people losing salvation. If you are being saved, redeemed by Christ, he will keep you and he will hold you fast. But that's the fact that the hostility of the world can have on us. In fact, it seems to be a strategy of Satan to so pressure God's people so that they being cracked in the middle and in their relationship with one another they betray and they hate one another. When we read John, the gospel, one of the signs was, how will people know that they are my disciples if they love one another? What will you say? Well, Christians don't f- hate each other. Well, you have to read some blogs sometimes, how they treat the I mean, it's, it's awful how they talk about other Christians. Instead of going after an argument, they go after the people. It's, it's very sad. And that can happen here in the church. I think one of, uh, in society, one of the two things that I see sometimes that kind of infiltrated the church is this kind of hypersensibility. We're so sensible. When someone confronts us in, in a sin, we feel offended and we just go after that person. But that is antithetical to the gospel of this idea of self-entitlement. I deserve everything. And I, that, has been, that has to be given to me. And then if it's not given to us, then we hate people. But that is not the Christian character. 
We see that in the Bible. We see how they love each other and how Christ emphasized that. Truth and love. They always come together. In fact, when one of, that's one of the problems with one of the churches in Revelation, with the church of Ephesus, when the, who the Christ confronts and he says, I'll read Revelations 2, verses 3 and 4. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up many for my name's sake, and you have not grown weedy, but, he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do works you did at first. If not, he will destroy you, he says. So the church of Ephesus was so good defending the truth, so good fighting false teachers, that they fall into coldness. And Christ said, repent of that call, of that lack of love. If not, I will destroy you. So do not grow weedy in doing good. Do not grow weedy in loving each other. Do not let your love grow cold. But run hard until the end so that you can say like, say like Paul, going across the finish line, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. We have to endure. We have to fight. We have to hold fast to the truth. That is called the overcomers in Revelation. We have to overcome temptation. We have to overcome persecution. God preserve us, and he will preserve us, but we have to fight. We have to move forward, and we have to trust him. If you're a non-Christian here today, you don't know the gospel, I beg you to come to Christ. As, as, the, same, as the hymn says, do not perish in, our, in your sin. We all sin. We are born fallen, depraved. We sin in our life. We can see that in how we think, in what we say, in how we treat others. We all have sin. The Bible said that we all have all church of the glory of God. But God, who is good and merciful, he came in the person of his son, the eternal son. He came down, he became flesh, he became human, and he lived, he lived the life that we should have lived, but that we have not. And he went to the cross, and he received the death that we deserve. And the third day he rose again from death, defeating sin and death, so that we repent and trust him. He will reconcile to us. He will make us new. He will make a new creation. He take our sin in the cross, and he nailed the sin in the cross, and he made us righteous, obedience like him. Oh, please, do not reject the Lord. Don't behave. Don't do like Israel was doing that they rejected him, and then he rejected them. I do not promise you that Christianity is fun and easy. It will cost, and we see that here. Sometimes it will cost you friends. Sometimes it will cost you family relationships. And it will cost you the sin that you love. But it's worthy. It is sweet, and it's beautiful. Brothers and sisters, I want to close with reading uh, a quote from a letter from a 
a bishop in the first century, Ignatius of Antioch. He was a pastor. Uh, he was a pastor in Antioch. And he was taken to prison by the Roman army. And he was put in chain. And he was taken to Rome. On, way, on his way to Rome, he was going to martyrdom. He wanted to be killed by his faith, by the Roman army. And on his way to Rome, he wrote to the church in Rome. Because he heard that the church in Rome, knowing about his situation, they were trying to pay some government officials, some arm, army generals, so that they would free him. We see that. You know, corruption is not only today. We saw that in the first century. So the church was trying to do that, to pay some officials. And he heard about that, and he wrote to them. And this is what he said. It is better for me to die in Christ Jesus than to be king of the end of the earth. I seek him who died for our sake. I desire him who rose again for our sake. The pains of a new birth are upon me. Allow me, my brothers. Hinder me not from living. Do not wish me to die. Do not offer the world to one who wants to be with God. Allow me to receive the pure light. And when I get there, then I be a man. We know this is true because the Bible tells that. And I like the image that the scripture here is using. Birth pains. And Christ talked about that. He used that image in other places. I cannot tell you how painful it is, but I, I have an idea because I have seen my wife. When you're going to give birth, it's painful. It's awful, but you know that the reward is glorious. That when the baby comes, the tears are wiped away. Here we will be challenged. Here we will be persecuted. Here we will suffer, but the rejoice is great, as, the, as great is our God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you that you have redeemed us in Christ Jesus. Thank you that we know that our future is beautiful and glorious because you have conquered. You have this defeated sin and death. Thank you, Father. Help us to be bold. Help us to keep our eyes on Christ Jesus. Help us to fight all the destruction that we have and help us to finish the race well. It is in Christ that we pray. Amen.